Uh, we just want to welcome you again uh, to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing faith, in building community, and in the hope of Jesus. Um, we are continuing on today with our series, and, and our series is called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And, and throughout this story, we are journeying through some of the major and minor stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we're discovering some of the ways that God reveals his unexpected love through these stories. And we find that most often these ways uh, that God reveals himself are contrary to the political, social, and cultural expectations of the time. And so this week, we are in 1 Kings chapter 12. This will be uh, our main story for today, 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to be learning about two different kings uh, with very similar names, so don't get them confused. Um, We're going to be learning about this king named Rehoboam and another king named Jeroboam. So they have very similar names, and I tried to figure out a way to remember where they belong to, but it didn't work out with their names. So just remember that Rehoboam is king of Judah, and Jeroboam is king of Israel, two different um, nations. And we're going to kind of discover this as we read this chapter today. Uh, But last week, we learned about God's gift of wisdom that he gave to Solomon, how God had given him an offer, and Solomon asked for wisdom, and then God blessed him and blessed him with even more. And we talked about the generosity of God. We talked about God giving the more, and we talked about how God appears in high places, how he comes to us, even when we're in the midst of, of our troubles, in the midst of our difficulties, that God doesn't wait for us to get our act together, but instead, he appears to us and reaches out to us in the middle of our mistakes. And, and mistakes are many, especially not just for us, but for Solomon, because Solomon was king for a while. And although he starts off uh, very honorably, he unfortunately gives in uh, to his power. He gives in to his desires. And, and Solomon is, is just as famously known for his wisdom as he is for having hundreds of wives and, and concubines. And unfortunately, this creates uh, numerous different problems for not just Solomon, but for the nation as he kind of introduces pagan worship through some of the different, the, the different wives that he takes on are from all these different nations that worship all these different gods. And so he ends up kind of introducing some of that worship to the nation on an official basis. He officially builds these shrines and these altars and these poles for all of these different uh, gods. And so Solomon dies having made not just many mistakes, but also having planted the seed uh, of idolatry, unfortunately, for the rest of the nation. And we're going to see this as we read through not just this story, but the rest of the book of Kings. So Solomon dies and, and he kind of leaves his kingdom to his successor, Rehoboam. And this is where our story begins in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. It'll be available on the screen for you if you want to read along in the New International Version. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. This is the coronation of Rehoboam. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. And so they sent for Jeroboam, the people of Israel, and he and the whole assembly of, of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, They said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and we will serve you. So just a pause because we're introduced to this new character, uh, Jeroboam. Uh, Jeroboam was previously, before Rehoboam came in, during Solomon's reign, uh, Jeroboam was appointed as the head of forced labor. Jeroboam was this really incredibly hardworking guy. Solomon recognizes this. And so he puts him in charge of the forced labor and and he becomes to, uh, he's in charge of the two half tribes of Joseph. Uh, which is actually his own tribe. So he becomes kind of the head leader of of the labor for his own tribe. And this prophet named Ahijah comes to Jeroboam 
And he delivers this message from the Lord that the kingdom would be taken from Solomon. That the kingdom would be divided because Solomon had, had strayed and, and had introduced all this idol worship. And so God would take part of the kingdom from Solomon, but would not take it completely because God had promised David uh, that he would always have a man sitting on the throne forever and ever. And so this, this kingdom kind of gets divided eventually, and we'll see this. Um, but Ahijah promises to Jeroboam, God is going to give you 10 tribes out of the 12. And if you follow the Lord, if you obey the Lord, God will bless you with these 10 tribes that he's given you, and he will also give you a long-lasting dynasty. And so Solomon somehow finds out, uh, and he tries to kill Jeroboam, and so he flees to Egypt, and he, and he hides, and, and kind of now that Solomon is dead, uh, and Rehoboam is the new king to come up, Jeroboam comes back, uh, and he comes back with Israel, and he, and he comes, kind of his first point of orders, first point of business is, let us lighten the load of the people. Remember, because he was the head of forced labor and he kind of knows what it's like for his people to be in this, in this uh, kind of work environment. And so he kind of goes and he leads the charge with the rest of Israel before the new king and says, lighten the load for us. And you see, under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was, was the best it could possibly be. It flourished. There was so much uh, commerce and economy increasing in the, in the nation of Israel under Solomon. Uh, but he also conscripted his own people into labor to kind of build some of the major building projects and some of the uh, stuff that, that Solomon had undertaken. And so now Jeroboam and the Israel is before Rehoboam. And this is where we go to verse 5. And Rehoboam answered them, go away for three days and then come back to me. And so the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. And he asks, how would you advise me to answer these people? They replied in verse 7, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the, lo the yoke your father put on us? Let's skip down to verse 12. And it says, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. And as the king had said, come back to me in three days. So they came back. And the king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, so I will make it even heavier. He says, my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. They're not literal scorpions. It's this uh, tool implemented that they would attach these kind of metal barbs at the end of their whips. So it would kind of scratch them. It's kind of like a scorpion's tail. So that's what he says. He says, he says my father treated you nicely, essentially. He says, you think that the yoke my father put on you was heavy? He says, I will make it even heavier. So the king did not listen to the people, verse 15, for this turn of events was from the Lord. So, and to fulfill the word, the Lord has spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the town of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. We're going to pause there for a second at verse 17. 
Remember that the nation of Israel is already just a little bit contentious. After Saul has died, remember that we talked about David kind of being like the usurper to the throne. He kind of takes over the throne. Israel, the rest of Israel, the 10 tribes, uh, kind of have this problem with David. They don't really like David. We, we, we like to think that David just kind of comes in, he's this heroic guy, and, and he builds this kingdom, he does these great things. But the people actually didn't like David that much as soon as he came into king. And so it took a little bit of working, a little bit of uh, kind of political um, dealings to get the nations together. And so, um, what was his name? Uh, not Joab, I think it was Joab. Joab was, was David's commander, and he kind of worked with Israel to kind of bring them in together. And so they've, they kind of have this united kingdom, but there are still the seeds of political dissension among the ranks of Israel. And so this is exactly what happens. The people of Israel say, what share do we have in David? They say, we don't, we don't want David as king anymore. We don't want his descendants as king anymore. So we're going kind of our own ways as everyone to their own house. And so verse 20 says, when all of the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent for him and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. So the, the nation gets divided, the 10 tribes to the north get divided, and the two tribes to the south, it becomes the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The reason that Benjamin stays with Judah is because the city of Jerusalem is actually in the territory of Benjamin, and so the kind of the, the seat of power for Judah is surrounding Benjamin. So Benjamin and Judah kind of form this coalition, and they, and they unite together. But verse 25, it says this, Then Jeroboam who's now king of the 10 tribes in the north, fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. From there he went on and he built Peniel. And Jeroboam thought to himself in verse 26, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, which is the kingdom of Judah, they will again give their allegiance to, the, to their Lord, Rehoboam, which is the king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Verse 28 says, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. We're going to pause there. See, Rehoboam was asked to lighten the load of the people. The people were kind of tired of the forced labor that they, were, they, were, they had under Solomon. And the people didn't ask not to work. They didn't say, listen, we don't want to work for you anymore. We want to be free. They didn't say that. They just said, lighten the load. We're okay with working for our own nation. We're okay with working for you, but it's a little too rough right now. Please lighten the load. And, th and they say that. They say, if you lighten the load, we will serve you forever. Yeah. They say, well, happily, we'll serve you forever as long as you lighten the load. Um, but Rehoboam doesn't take this decision lightly. So he goes, kind of spends three days consulting some people and, and comes back with a response. And he talks to the elders. These are the advisors that, that kind of worked with Solomon. They, they worked alongside Solomon. They give Rehoboam good advice. They basically say, be a servant to the people. Like, serve the people. Keep them in mind. Have their interests in mind. And they will serve you faithfully for the rest of your life. If you are good to them, they will be good to you. But Rehoboam doesn't take the advice, and, and whether it's because he doesn't respect the elders, because he didn't like the advice, we don't really know, but he goes to these young men, and he goes and consults these people that he grew up with, and, and it was tradition in those times for the, for the culture to raise these young men, young princes or, or, or sons of prominent leaders, they would raise them with the new coming uh, king, and they would kind of go through the same schooling, they would go through the same training, so that when the king actually rose to power, he had kind of contemporaries, he had people of his own age to kind of advise him, and, and they would have been trained in the same kind of area. And so Rehoboam goes, and he consults with the men that he's grown up with, and all of his life, his best friends, and he takes their advice, and he listens to them, and the advice isn't as kind as the elders. Because the elders said, serve the people, they'll serve you forever. The young men said, no, don't, don't, don't listen to them. Treat them harsher. If, if, if they think 
that this is harsh, show them who's boss. That's essentially what they say. And so Rehoboam ignores the advice of the elders, listens to his friends, and he treats the people with hostility and with force. And the people, unhappy with the response that Rehoboam gives them, they rebel, they break off, they form their own kingdom, they crown their own king, and the kingdom is then divided because Rehoboam listens to the wrong people. This is our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is seek wise counsel. Our first lesson is seek wise counsel. You see, the people that you allow to influence your life will affect the trajectory of your life's future. The people that you surround yourself with, the people that you allow into your inner circle will impact the way the rest of your life unfolds for better or for worse. So it's so important. That's why it's so important to choose who and what kind of people you allow into your life. We need to surround ourselves with people who will motivate us to change for the better. People who will hold us accountable to the bad choices and our bad actions, not people who are enablers. We kind of had a sermon about that before. Not people who are enablers, who enable us into wrong choices, but people who will point us in the right direction. And this doesn't mean that you can't be friends with bad people. I'm not saying, like, cut off every person that doesn't line up with your viewpoint out of your life. I'm not saying if people are making different choices than you, then you just cut them out of your life, you unfriend them, you unfollow them, you whatever. That's not what I'm saying. We all have a variety and diversity of friends, uh, people of all different walks of life, people who have vastly different viewpoints and ideologies than we do. But we also, whether we realize it or not, we also have an inner circle. Right? Everybody has their inner circle. Everybody has, whether it's family or whether it's really close, close friends that you've grown up with, people that you've gone to school with, whatever, we all have an inner circle. It's that inner circle that influences us. So seek wise counsel. Seek is an active word. It is a verb. It is an action. It is not something that you passively let go by. It's something that you choose to be involved with. You seek who you get advice from. You seek who you let influence. You don't let Listen to this. Don't let people passively influence you, right? Don't let people passively influence you. You seek who you get advice from. And if you notice that certain people's behaviors or attitudes are negatively affecting and changing your life, then maybe stop letting them be part of your inner circle, right? Maybe stop letting toxic people be part of your inner circle if they're changing you negatively. And just because, listen to this, just because someone is a good friend does not mean they'll give good advice. Okay? Just because someone is a good friend does not mean they will give good advice. Just because someone is close to us in relationship doesn't mean they'll give us good guidance. Good friends can be bad influences. I've got some fantastic friends. Okay? People that I've known since... I was a kid, people that I love dearly, people that I've grown up with. But some of these people aren't people I seek advice from. <laughs> Unfortunately, I hope they're not watching. <laughs> there are people that I've grown up with since kindergarten, like since I was three before kindergarten. But some of these people I don't seek advice from <laughs> because they might not give me the advice that I need. Likewise, though, the other way around too. I have really great spiritual mentors, people that guide me in the right path, people that guide me to right choices, but there are also people I might not seek financial advice from. Yeah. You guys following? Right? Not everybody will be good for every piece of advice. Yeah. I've got great friends, but some of them I won't ask for career advice from. I choose who I ask what type of advice from. I seek wise counsel. You get to choose who you let influence your life 
and you get to choose who you let advise your life. Maybe the person that is living paycheck to paycheck because they spend every free cent of their paycheck partying and drinking and doing whatever else it is that they're doing, maybe they're not the right person to ask about financial advice from. Maybe they're not the person to ask about investment advice from. Right? If they don't have investments for themselves, if they don't have things going on in their life financially, maybe don't ask them for advice. Right? Maybe the person who's going from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, maybe they're not the person to ask for marriage advice from. Right? Um, you get to choose who you let influence your life. Seek wise counsel. And, and while you don't have to cut people out of your life, there may be a time where we need to start choosing better friends. Because this is important, because this is what happens in the story. We are more likely, listen to this, we are more likely to listen to a good friend than good advice. You guys following? That's like a light bulb moment, I think. At least for for me. We are more likely to listen to good friends over good advice. Because that's what happens with Rehoboam. He has good advice from the elders. It's wise counsel. But instead of listening to the good advice, he listens to his good friends. And it costs him 80% of his kingdom. And even Jeroboam, actually verse 28, even Jeroboam, the other king, we learn this lesson from him too because he wonders what to do about this worship problem. He's afraid that if people keep going back to Jerusalem, they're eventually going to worship and sacrifice there and turn back to the kingdom of Judah and Rehoboam and kill him. So in verse 28, it says that he seeks counsel and this counsel guides him to creating these golden calves. This choice led him to ruin not just his household, but also the kingdom of Israel. Who we let influence our lives will determine the circumstances of our future. So seek wise counsel. So let's go back to the next portion of the story, which starts in verse 25. And verse 25 goes like this, then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And from there he went up and he built up Peniel. So Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer the sacrifices of the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and returned to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Listen, after seeking advice, bad advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So one he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So Jeroboam built shrines on high places, and we talked about those high places, and appointed priests of all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites, as God had commanded them. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. And so he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam, the king of the other 10 nations of the north, he doesn't want his people going down south to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice because he's afraid they'll eventually be folded back in to that kingdom. So after bad advice, he builds these two calves because he says this, he says, it is too much for you to go all the way down 
to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the southern portion of the kingdom of Israel. So he says, there's too much for you to travel. So here are your gods who have brought you up out of Egypt. And the word, the wording that he chooses, you might remember, might be familiar to you because it's the same wording that Aaron uses when the people rebel at, uh, uh, from God at Mount Carmel after they've crossed the Red Sea, right? He's choosing this wording because he's trying to convey the idea that, he, what, that what he is doing, that this new worship feature that he's introducing is a part of, of this institution that Aaron started a long time ago. And so he sets up these two golden calves in Dan and Bethel, and those names might not mean anything to you, but Dan is actually the, the, the most northern part, the most northern city in the kingdom, and Bethel, the most southern city in the kingdom. Right? So he sets one far north, one far south, so that anybody doesn't have to travel to Jerusalem, they can just go to either direction. If they're closer to Dan, they go up to Dan. If they're closer to Bethel, they go down to Bethel. Bethel is actually uh, the kind of merging point of all the roads. Bethel is kind of like the crossroads. Whenever someone wants to go to Jerusalem, if they're from the northern tribes, they have to go through Bethel to get to Jerusalem. So he institutes a worship thing there. He institutes his own idols there at Bethel, hoping that if anyone goes down to Jerusalem, they'll stop and just find it convenient to worship there at Bethel instead. So Jeroboam, he also institutes his own festival on the 15th day of the eighth, eighth month. And the author says it's a day or a month of his own choosing. This was to, to compete with God's festival, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which happened on the 15th day of the seventh month, just a month before. And so the reason that he does this is because in the north, the crops took just a little bit longer to come to maturity, to ripen. And so he says, well, if this feast is about celebrating the harvests, then we should do it just a month later. It's more convenient for us to celebrate when we actually have the harvest. And he also institutes his own priests because at this point in time, it tells us in the Chronicles, but not in the Kings, that the Levites, they abandon the kingdom of Israel because of the stuff that Jeroboam is doing and they go down to Judah to kind of serve and they don't serve in, in uh, Jeroboam's kind of idol worship. So he institutes his own priests in connection with his idols and he conveniently gives the priesthood to literally anyone. Anyone that wants it, he gives them and he makes them a priest. He gives them the ability to offer sacrifices. All of this, the whole festival thing, the whole uh, idol worship thing, the whole priesthood thing, all of this goes against what God had instituted and ordained for his people. And this is our second lesson. Our second lesson is convenience isn't always convenient. Okay? Convenience isn't always convenient. Because while Jeroboam made it easier for the people to worship in the northern part of the kingdom, none of the changes he made were actually for the sake of actual worship. Every change that he made was to secure his kingdom. And this eventually led people into severe idolatry and, and, and even eventually into the captivity of the other nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all these other people came and they took captive the Israelites because God had removed his divine protection from them after they chose to follow other gods. People may have found it convenient to travel less to worship, to celebrate at their time of harvest, to find a priest almost anywhere, but centuries of slavery later was arguably less convenient than the convenience right now. Sometimes we take shortcuts and do what is convenient, but in the long run, it is not so convenient. See, in the commandments, that God gave Moses in, the, in, in Exodus chapter 20, the first two commandments that God gives, he says, he says, do not worship any other God beside Yahweh. And the second commandment is do not make any graven images or bow before them. You see, Jeroboam made two golden calves, 
but they weren't yet worshiping other gods. Because we might be tempted to think they started worshiping these cow gods, but that's not the case. Um, They were actually still technically, technically worshiping Yahweh through the calves. Uh, They were breaking primarily the second commandment. The graven image is not the first because they were still worshiping Yahweh, even though they were worshiping the calves. And and the reason is is because it's actually very intricate. Jeroboam makes the golden calves not in opposition to Yahweh, but rather as a symbol of Yahweh. So he kind of takes this practice of the Canaanites, he takes the practice of the Egyptians with with, uh, Apis the bull, and the Canaanites with El, the the, the same symbol, which which is this bull. He takes it and he conveniently mixes it together to represent Yahweh, because the bull in in, in the ancient East represented gods of creation, it represented sustenance, it represented protection and fertility and all this other stuff. And so he takes that and he kind of transmutes it and transforms it to become a symbol of Yahweh. And conveniently, he also... The, the way that he builds the calves, he doesn't just build two straight cows made out of gold. He actually fashions them as, as cherubim. If you guys have ever seen kind of like Babylonian pictures where like there's like this weird like head of a man on a body of a lion with wings. Have you guys ever seen that? That's kind of like, that's similar to what the cherubims would have looked like. And so he builds these two calves kind of like cherubims to represent the two cherubim that would have sat on the Ark of the Covenant. So he's literally copying the exact same thing, except he's transforming it in such a way that it's convenient for all these other people, right? So remember that the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence. It was was God's throne here on earth. Whenever God ruled, it was from the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So Jeroboam, he builds the same thing. He builds two golden calves to represent the cherubim, and then he spreads them to Dan and to Bethel, kind of symbolizing for himself that God's throne sits over the entirety of the nation of Israel. But despite the similarities and the symbolism, none of this was approved by God. In fact, it went against everything that God had commanded his people. And Jeroboam had actually turned Yahweh into an idol. Interesting. He had turned Yahweh into an idol. He turned the convenience of worship into idolatry. Convenience isn't always convenient. You know, John Calvin, famous theologian, he says this. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. He says, our hearts are idol factories. You know, idols are not always other gods because we're, we're tempted to think of that. We're tempted to think that if we're worshiping other gods, then we're not worshiping. That, that's what idols are. But idols are reputation. Idols are power, our identity, fame, church, relationships. Anything that takes our eyes off of God can be an idol. Idols can even be facets or representations of God. We can create idols out of God when we make God in our own image, when we force God to live up to our expectations, when we say that God only functions the way that I believe God functions, we make an idol out of God. We can create idols out of church when we pursue convenience in worship over actually worshiping God. We can create idols out of our spirituality when we are content with praying and singing and going to church, but never doing any of the actual important stuff that God has called us to do, which is making disciples and spreading the gospel to anyone and everyone. And verse 30 says, this thing became a sin. What started off as half-decent intentions with pursuing convenience for the people became a sin to the nation of Israel. The question that I have is, might we be making our own idols by pursuing our own convenience and our own intentions? See, convenience isn't always convenience. When we sacrifice the gospel for the sake of our own comfort and convenience, we are making idols out of our own spirituality. Did you guys hear that? When we sacrifice the gospel 
For the sake of our own comfort and convenience, we are making idols out of our own spirituality. We make idols out of Jesus when we continue to worship him, rationalizing that he's okay with our apathy towards the spreading of his gospel. You know, and we likely all fall into this category of making our own idols in whatever possible way that we make them. I know that we are guilty of creating our own idols of just about literally anything. We are so deeply broken and messed up. That's just, our, unfortunately, our nature. But the best part of it is that a story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with these people making these idols and making idols at a convenience. The story continues, actually. And the story continues after the worship of idols, continues after the worship of false gods. And if you read the rest of the kings, which we're going to be going through this series, if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll read countless stories of God's prophets, God's people reaching out to everyone else, trying to bring them back to Yahweh. God continually sends prophets. Even the next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 13, is about this prophet coming to Jeroboam to reach him. Even the stories of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, which we'll be reading next time, is actually the story of this prophet coming to the nation of Israel, where Jeroboam had instituted the false worship. It's this story, the rest of the Bible, this story of these people of God coming to the lost people, trying to bring them back to Yahweh. God is constantly sending people to reach us. This is our final lesson. Our final lesson is God doesn't abandon sinners. God never abandons us. Sometimes the choices that we make, they carry consequences. When we abandon God, we give up the divine protection. That's what happens to Israel. They abandoned God. They worshiped other gods. They worshiped false gods. They put their trust in fake deities. And so when the surrounding nations came in to attack the Israelites, these fake deities that they worship had no power to save them. But no matter how many times Israel goes back and forth between worshiping God and worshiping idols and trying to worship God, but really worshiping idols, God never abandons them. I invite the bad to come on up as we begin to close. And what we read throughout the story and throughout the rest of the story of the Bible is that time after time, God does everything he can to lead his people back to him. No matter how many times we make up our own idols, no matter how many times we, we fail to live up to the call that God has placed in our lives, God never abandons us. He tries desperately to reach us. And his love we find through the story of the Bible, his love is relentless. His love goes to the deepest depths. His love goes to the highest heights. He goes all the way to the cross to show us how much he loves us. He gives us the opportunity to accept his sacrifice, his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation. And the way that we do that, the way that we show our acceptance is by choosing to live our lives in a way that values the sacrifice of Jesus. By prioritizing Jesus, by prioritizing his words and his life and his actions and his gospel. And as we choose what direction we head in our lives as we choose how we live our lives. Our first lesson is seek wise counsel. Because the people that you choose to surround yourself with, the people that you let influence your life will become the people that determine what trajectory your life heads on. Good friends don't always give good advice. And whether we like to admit it or not, we are prone to listen to good friends over good advice. So that's why it's so important to choose our circle of influence, to choose who we let influence us. And while it may be easy to choose comfort and convenience, remember that convenience isn't always convenient. 
Sometimes the shortcuts that we take are more trouble than they're worth. They may lead us into bad decisions and, and might even lead us into our own form of idolatry because idols don't always look like other gods. Idols can be anything, literally anything that takes our focus off of God. This means that even our church and spirituality can be turned into idols. When we prioritize convenience over calling, we risk turning our walk with God into its own idol. Our spirituality can become an idol when it ceases to bring life and change. When we sit in the comfort of our complacency and choose convenience over gospel, we might be just worshiping the idea of Jesus, not actually Jesus. But never forget, never forget, that as sinful and broken as we might be, God never abandons us. God doesn't abandon sinners. God will always send messages into our lives through people, through church, through movies, through music, through books, through moments of clarity, literally through any means trying to reach us. God never abandons us and he never gives up on us. He has moved heaven and earth. He has defeated death so that we might enter into relationship with him and have that sweet, sweet salvation that he offers. So if you find yourself still making mistakes, if you are like me, a consistent failure, if you are a sinner like me, if you find yourself making mistakes, don't be afraid because your story isn't over. God is not done. God doesn't abandon you. His love continues to reach out for you relentlessly and recklessly. And the beautiful thing about God's love is that his love can't be held back. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus. That's what Paul says. Neither heaven nor, or, nor, nor earth, neither angels nor demons, nor, nor any power in all of existence can separate us from the love that God has for us. So if we find ourselves constantly making mistakes, being broken, trust and know that God is still reaching out to you. God still loves you. And God is working something amazing in your life.